I'm gonna make sure my phone's muted. Otherwise, I'll get texty texts about everything, everything. And then Derek has to do extra editing to edit out all your yeah cell phone texts. I'm very I was commenting to Kelly about how many times on the podcast she says she has to pee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hello, friends and beans. Welcome to Bugs Need Heroes, a podcast where an artist and an entomologist team up to illustrate the inspiring abilities of insects by creating a bug-themed superhero. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kelly. Before we get started creating this bug-inspired hero, what's bugging you, Kelly? Um, I have no complaints. I feel like things should be bugging me. Nothing. I got I got nothing today, Amanda. Although, I guess what is bugging me is we, we don't have a hero today. <gasps> and that makes me a little sad. What am I supposed to do on this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I'm, I'm left listless. <laughs> well, we, we've we've invited our very own hero to talk to today because we have a guest. <gasps> a bugs need hero. Hero has emerged. <laughs> a podcast is now obsolete. We have one. I mean, well, I guess before we do that, though, do. You, What's bugging you, Amanda? Is anything oh, bugging you today? Well, this kitchen is what's bothering me. Um, it looks nice. What's wrong with the kitchen? It, oh, no, 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 no. The dishwasher is broken. So there are dishes everywhere. And, oh, people are going to know I re- record in the kitchen now. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> the dishwasher is not working. And we built a new shelf, which is theoretically a good thing. But it means there's boxes everywhere because we had to move everything. Hmm. And most importantly, yesterday it tried to light itself on fire. What? How does that... Amanda, you're an adult, I thought. (laughs) You'd think that, Kelly. You'd think my three decades on this earth would mean I don't accidentally light the kitchen on fire. Which is accurate because I am not the one who tried to light it on fire. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Cody made nachos. And he put the nachos in the oven while it was preheating. And then he turned on the fan. And then the fan started to smoke. So then he had to turn off the fan because it was trying to light itself on fire. And by the time he figured out what was going on with the fan, the nachos had burned. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't smell no, it because we're not on smell vision But nachos are so this- <laughs> easy to make. <laughs> no. How does this happen now. with nachos? Well... When the fan tries to catch itself on fire, that's more important than the nachos. You got to turn around and get them. I thought Cody was a professional cook. Yeah, but he's not a professional um, ceiling fan man. Nacho maker? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's the little things that get away from you. Oh, boy. Like I said, this is not smell-o-vision, but know that this kitchen does smell just a little bit. Like burned nachos. I do want to mention that producer Derek just called him Nacho Man. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm gonna Nacho call Man Cody later. Savage. <laughs> Nacho Man Cody Savage. Uh Pen, if you don't remember, my husband attended professional wrestling school. Um, but I think they, they had some character lined up for him, but it was like a country bumpkin character. I don't know where they thought he was from in Washington, but like he says he's never said this to me, but I swear he did say this to me. That they wanted him to wear overalls where one of the overalls was undone. Perfect. I don't I, but maybe that was just my imagination. He claims he's never said that to me. But I don't I, I don't insist know. that they, that he did. To, to be a fly on the wall in your house, Amanda. <laughs> that the chaos <would> reigns. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
You're not the first person to accuse me of uh, wanting to become a fly. But if I'm honest, Kelly, I think you want to become a fly anyway. Um, well, we, we could do a whole episode on what bugs would I like to be because there are many. <laughs> are we? Are, but, so you're going to lock it in at if you had a superpower, it would be to turn into any bug. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, no. that sounds mm-hmm. perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. But speaking of superheroes and powers, right? <laughs> right we have a, a special guest today who is my plant hero, my my colleague, one of my partners in crime, uh, Dr. Pedram Dineshkar. Hello. Ped, <laughs> welcome to the me. show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So, Ped, you're you're a plant guy. Can you explain to us exactly what your your title, I guess, is? Um, what do you refer to yourself as? It depends on my audience, actually. <laughs> so um, my my dissertation, my doctoral work was in invasive species and forestry. So to non-science folks, I'm a tree hugger, essentially. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Um, but my title at my university is a terrestrial ecologist, but I'm basically a coastal ecologist. Okay. So I did you study... do work with the emerald ash borer previously mentioned on the podcast? No, I studied invasive plants. Um, oh, but oh, that makes more sense. My, yeah, my dabbling into understanding insects' roles are mostly related to biological biological control. So we, we could talk about that because um, specialists will talk. We'll maybe talk about what specialists are, but those are our control agents. Those are our best control agents. Brief aside yeah. from the recently passed Christmas season. I was trying to explain to someone what mistletoe is. <laughs> is mistletoe right. invasive or is it yes. just parasitic? A little of both, depending on where you are. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, too, because I, a lot of people, a lot of things are sold as mistletoe when they're not. Um, <gasps> this is like the tuna at a sushi restaurant thing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. I think you could just hang anything green and red from the ceiling and say, (laughs) this is a good place to... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we're watching Derek type. He says, was was ragwort one of the species that you studied? I want to do an episode on the cinnabar moth, says Derek. Oh, that would be cool. (laughs) Um, No, so I studied an invasive grass that was brought over as an ornamental... Um, the ornamental version is called bloodgrass because it's... It's a cool name. Yeah, Were they trying quite... to make it a villain? <laughs> like, no, okay, no. now we're going to have an invasive species named bloodgrass. Yeah. But so it just like, um, it kind of, that was like a horticultural variety and it kind of reverted back to its regular boring green version. Mm. And uh, it kind of has been kind of spreading all over forests in the southeast and uh, the cogan grass is the common name, and um, it was problematic because it's filled with silica, and it actually lacerates the mouths of any herbivore that tries to eat it. Oh, that's and harsh! It burns very hot. Remember in like chemistry, learning that like blue flames are hotter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. They they burn hot. They burn hotter. So in forest systems that are adapted to fire they can't overcome the intensity of the fire that this grass produces. So, Oh, wow. What an interesting yeah. problem for an invasive to bring into an ecosystem. Right. I don't like, think I've heard of anything it. like that before. <laughs> yeah, you can't eat it. You can't um, set it on fire. 
You can set it and on it's not Spotify. even the color you wanted. Right. Truly horrible. And for a while, you could buy it on eBay. Like the blood grass, you could just buy it on eBay. Oh, no. So. You can eBay buy anything on eBay. where all the shenanigans happen in terms of the movement of illegal or noxious The wild, or wild west species. of invasive species. Yeah. So. I'm not going to lie. Blood grass does sound like guilty, yeah. a collectible on like a Dark Souls. You're like, oh, you need 400 blood grass to make this potion. <laughs> it does. It's like a wild <laughs> item. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to use it to improve my blood steel. I'm going to put some blood grass on it. So in order to control that particular grass, um, you have to do a bunch of different things. So there, you you have to mow, you have to spray, you have to till. There's all these things you have to do repeatedly over time. And uh, eradication sometimes can take four or five years. Oh my oh, wow. gosh. Um, and it's because like, um, it's so prolific in how it reproduces. So sexually it produces seeds, you know, each mm-hmm. flower is a thousand seeds, um, that are very light wind dispersed can spread miles, um, and highly viable for up to a few years. Right. And then vegetatively, you can take one tenth of a gram of root fragment and start a new plant from it. Oh, so, wow. So it's really prolific. That's... Yeah, if you if you're really trying to like stick into the theme of the podcast, really identify true villains, just study like the ten most invasive things and how they do what they do. Mm. And they're just they're truly just gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like as the longer you describe it, the more I'm like, well, this plant's winning. Then it is like, winning. <laughs> it's just gonna win the evolution uh, pyramid here. It's at the top. You're not getting rid of it. Well, it's it's funny too because there's a lot of folks I've met in the field that their approach with invasives is they're here. Let's not waste millions of dollars trying to get rid of them. Let's just conserve the natives and make sure the invasions don't spread. Mm, so interesting. That's a yeah. really difficult task, though. Um, yeah, it is. I feel like well, look at this here on the East Coast, the spotted lanternfly that went from Pennsylvania to an explosion along the east coast in just what two years two years um it's really difficult to manage invasive species especially when they there's you know nothing here eating them although now birds are starting to eat the um lantern flies which we'll do a lantern fly episode at some point well the cool thing about plants is they don't move so (laughs) (laughs) so usually when you see them you if you spot like small introductions you can deal with that quickly right mm, as they're much you, easier yeah do it before they flower and you know spread seed put, put that dome from monsters incorporated over the top and then right. just explode it <laughs> inside there right that seems like the only way to do it here in uh oregon we have a blackberry bush that didn't start here but now has become so prevalent that people forget that it's not native because it overtook, I think, the native blackberry. It was like, this is mine now. And once you see one little thorny, I don't know what it's called, other than a vine, it it's done. You're going to be ripping that stuff out for years, years, years. Well, are people eating those blackberries? Now. Now they are. Yeah. See, that's there's also like a little bit of a double standard when it comes to uh, invasives. Because if it generates something we want, we don't treat it as an invasive. Oh, we don't oh, get good. so mad they, about they it. Used- they use the same rubric I do for how many legs to give a, a bug, right. which is, right. is it useful to me? Yeah. Can I eat it? <laughs> <laughs> I want to eat it. Yeah. 
there's like rogue uh like they call them volunteer or citrus like throughout florida but everybody's like yay citrus so (laughs) (laughs) not me because you don't you don't want citrus trees popping up in the in the ecosystems right you just want them in your backyard right right yeah so many people plant fruit trees in their backyard and then don't get every single fruit in fact most fruit ends up on the ground making your backyard smell so i'm i'm against most oranges end up on the ground actually um they deliberately don't harvest all of it to kind of regulate the market on orange juice really what they're creating a supply demand of orange juice in florida right so this is an orange juice conspiracy theory orange juice no it's not a conspiracy it's 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 legit they they deliberately don't harvest it all. Oh, that's fast. So the wasp that situation in an orange orchard must be out of control. Because I feel yeah. like an orange is a particularly sugary fruit. Right. You, you'd get the drunk. I never felt guilty guys. about hopping a fence and snagging oranges, though, when I was a graduate, poor graduate student. So. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do about those oranges. Friendly, but I'm not trying to encourage people to steal oranges but <laughs> i am <laughs> yeah, amanda is always encouraging <laughs> amanda's that little devil on your shoulder telling you to hop a fence and steal an orange yeah wow. well you ever I'm wonder why it's so expensive to go fruit picking it's <laughs> it's because they know you're, you're going to eat a bunch of stuff that you're, they're not going to weigh and oh really interesting that's oh okay so they're <laughs> they're charging you ahead of time like yeah. you're going to eat some of it right so Oh. That's that's like when you eat the banana in the grocery store. Yeah, like they they just know some of you guys are gonna do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so t- discussing fruit, um, there's a very important step to get to fruits, and it's it's why Pet is our our guest today to talk about, and that's pollination. This is of course Pet a uh, pollinator positive podcast, so I must <laughs> ask you: Are you pollinator positive? I tried to be. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> Without pollinators, you wouldn't have a lot of the plants you study, right? You right. gotta love those pollinators. Right. Nor would we have very much to eat. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, we'd be stuck to the grass family, which is all like wind pollinated. Yeah, I don't want to so, eat grass. I'm not. Well, a... I mean, corn. Yeah, it's got silica in it. It's gonna tear up my mouth. And, <laughs> yeah, that includes corn and you know. Oh yeah, I guess corn, but I'm not a it's ruminant. Cow! Right. <laughs> so, what are I know, I know, had, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the basics of pollination? Or better yet, how would you define pollination? What is pollinating? Okay, so pollination is uh, essentially doing the dirty for plants, which is <laughs> transferring pollen, which contains sperm and genetic information, from one flower to another in order to fertilize an egg which essentially will develop into a fruit. So pollinators are only involved with angiosperms, right? Flowering mm-hmm. plants. And part of the reason why we have so many insects, it's directly tied to the fact that we have so many angiosperms. So in the plant world, there's the most diversity in angiosperms, and that's directly correlated to the diversity of insects. Um, so plants and insects are best friends. That's what besties. I'm hearing. Yes. Total besties. I mean, there, so there are other pollinators that are outside the insect world, right? Um, birds and bats and things like that. Um, but most flowers have, um, they generate, or most plants have flowers that are 
with intention. So they're mm -hmm. trying to recruit one particular type of pollinator. Um, some pollinators are generalists, which means they go, they're not species specific and what they, where they get their food, their nectar, the pollen, whatever they're. So that's for. like the honeybees. They're just going blossom right. to blossom. And then some are very specific. We call them specialists. They have a very cool co-evolved kind of history. But what it means is when you're a specialist, if one thing's gone, the other is gone. So that's like kind of the tragic part of it. So, because I've heard that's we talked about it with the chocolate midges, and I think we mentioned it in the chocolate midge episode as well. That like there's this one tree left that the dodo bird was supposed to pollinate or something like that, and so there's only like one tree left, and no one can figure out how to make it make more trees because it was supposed to go through like the gut system of a dodo first. It's very sad. That's very very, very sad. sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because they do study that stuff at so that they can recreate it through technology. Right. right. So there are a lot of fruits that actually have to be digested by birds and the seeds actually have to be scarified, which means like grinded with sand, like, like in a gizzard of a bird. Interesting. And um, so now we, we can do that mechanically, um, which is kind of sad, but. We, yeah. <laughs> we're automating the birds. Yes. <laughs> got a bunch got of your job now, bird. Today. Yeah, the Gizzard 3000, you know. <laughs> Boston Labs putting together the Super right. Gizzard. Right. So, but the angiosperms, um, so the flowers, like, um, they all have their own tricks to attract different types of pollinators. For example, when they're trying to attract bees, they tend to be in blues and yellows. And it's because most bees see in UV. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, those are so that's the color that it appears to them. Like a yellow flower appears blue to a bee, and that attracts them. Um, but also, bee pollinated flowers tend to have like tracks or guidelines to show the bees, hey, like, hey, this is where you need to go. Come down this way. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and then some of them are a little like, I don't know, creepy. Like um, plants that are pollinated with, with flies tend to have rotting flesh smells. Yeah, yeah. Um, the original, like the first angiosperms had rotting smells. Right. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. So there's a there's one that's like called the carrion flower and it looks and smells like, like a dead carcass. It even it has like reddish tones is that to the, it. Is that the huge one? That's a, there is, is a this, huge Amanda? one and then there's some smaller ones. <laughs> if you knew what the flower looked like, Kelly, you'd know exactly <laughs> what I was doing there. It, like, and just making shapes pod. with their hands. Like yeah, that has a very like... rank smell too that yeah. um, attracts a very specific type of fly. I, I thought producer yeah. Derek went and saw one in Seattle once. Uh, no, it was in uh, Vancouver. But yes, I oh. did see a Titan arm. A Titan arm, yeah. I was not impressed. But I also arrived a few days <laughs> Nearly after. disgusting enough for me, says Derek, <laughs> as he like drinks a durian soda. <laughs> With his, his beetle colony in the background decomposing animals. Yeah, yeah. Derek, well, you some, nasty. Some of these big flowers are false because you're actually looking at an inflorescence, which is lots of flowers kind of fused together. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when did flowering 
like evolve? You may not know the answer to this because I always see like the dinosaur documentaries. I watch a lot of dinosaur documentaries (laughs) and they talk about how there's no flowers. There's only like ferns and grasses, but there's no flowers. When do flowers show up? That's a good question. A long time ago. Is that a good (laughs) (laughs) Before my time. (laughs) So the thing that's interesting is all the parts of a flower are just leaves modified, right? Mm -hmm. So the earliest flowers had no petals, had nothing showy to attract. And so when you think about what had to happen over evolution, this is a little back and forth of, oh, when I had a little bit of pigment in this one leaf, this thing came along and did my work. (laughs) Yeah. And so that reinforces that, right? Mm -hmm. The reproductive success was higher. And so it's a lot of back and forth. And so the pollinator had some benefits, nutritional benefits likely, which is what reinforced their success and, you know, increased their productivity and their likelihood to pass on their genes. So this kind of back and forth co-evolution is how all these kind of relationships develop. And it takes and a million fascinating. Of years. Yes. It takes a million Absolutely years. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right. And then eventually it boils its way down to only the chocolate midge can pollinate this one flower. Right. Or uh, well, remember it wasn't only the chocolate midge. It was just well, mostly, mostly. Is there any mostly. that it's like ex- exclusively that's it? It's the only this one? Yeah. So doing doing a quick a quick look, producer Derek. Thank you for the paper. The uh, most recent common ancestor of all living angiosperms likely existed between 140 and uh, 250 million years ago, which is, oh. I think, even older right. than I was. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about definitely a long, a long, so long there, time ago. So there was dinosaurs. They've been lying to me all this time. It's That's- possible there were dinosaur pollinators, actually. Oh my gosh. Imagine a stegosaurus, but he's the colors of a bee. (laughs) You just made Amanda's day thinking about a dinosaur pollinator. All those plates are actually just tiny wings and he's been flying around this whole time. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there are probably also ancient small reptile and small mammalian pollinators uh, during that time period. Oh, Ped, well, there's a question. Other than bats, what mammalian pollinators do we have? Other than just like cute little mice who get in the get in the blossoms and roll around. Well, I mean, it could yeah. be mice. <laughs> well, um, there there are mice, like mice pollinators. Person. Yeah, there are lemur pollinators. Um, hmm. What about a sloth? You see an accidental pollinator. <laughs> He's so slow. See the, so the plant's slow. waiting too long for it to get there. That's yeah. Because <laughs> um, I just know that like like a sloth so slow that like sometimes moss and algae will like grow on it. Yeah. Oh, they have a whole so, ecosystem. We should talk yeah. about that, the moth ecosystem on a sloth for another episode. Um, yeah, I would imagine cool. shrews, maybe? Yeah, definitely Anything shrews, small? Some mice, some... Any fuzzy little guy that gets Yeah, little plant. moles. Yeah. <laughs> the thing, the, the funny, the thing about sloths and the reason why they're so slow, it's because of their diet. Their plant, The plants they eat take so long to break down that, you know, that energy flow isn't there. Right? Yeah. So it's completely. There's a lawnmower di- with that grass sitting inside of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's directly related to how they digest and what they eat. So. Do, do you have a favorite pollinator, Ped? Um, 
or a favorite there, there's rela- a couple that combination relationship. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's one that really makes me laugh. So like um Ophris orchids, they have a part of the flower looks like a female bee or a female oh. wasp. And so they trick males into thinking that they're gonna get lucky, right? And so <laughs> you see these like Yeah, these be. like promiscuous male wasps come around, they see it and they're like, Oh look, there's a there's someone just waiting for a princess. <laughs> yes. And so what's it, what's interesting, so you see these males that they'll like mount them and they're they're rocking the heck out of this flower. And what the orchid does is it'll slap this sack of pollen on top. These sacks called pollinia. Hmm. And so it's funny, and I've seen like videos of them where you get multiple males trying to hook up with this same fake <laughs> this, this mannequin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that one's really funny, but it's it, it's interesting too because the kind of the structure or like the build of the orchid has to be strong enough to like handle the weight oh, of wow. that insect being there, right? So if you see like flowers that are have bilateral symmetry, right? That's usually an indicator that um, they have an insect pollinator. And the bottom part of that flower is called the keel. It's usually evolved from two leaves fusing together so that it's extra strong to hold the weight of that. Oh, that interesting. Yeah. 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 I think it's I hadn't thought about the weight to, before. It's interesting to try and attract the male of a of a wasp or a bee or whatever, because it feels like there's not that many of them really out there. Because every time we've talked about them with our, our bee team, it seems like they just kind of hang out at home and are like, man, when's a princess going to show up? (laughs) Well, that's the thing is a lot of those species of wasps and some bees, like the male's only job is to mate. So they're just flying around looking for something, you know, they go out looking They wait for the females to feed them. And then they'll go out looking for a mate. And some of them feed themselves too, but yeah. eh. Every time we talk about male bees, all I can imagine is like a nineties sitcom dad. You know, he's always like on the couch. He's always like, why are you nagging me woman? Maybe that's my bias showing. It's funny when I, when I I was invited to come on, I thought we were going to get some like a hero pair that like, fit together oh yeah somehow. yeah yeah we thought about it but we wanted to be able to talk about like all pollination and, you know, rather than trying to single down like oh we're gonna talk about orchids and the right. simps that they I mean, attract or whatever uh, it could go simps. wrong too <laughs> yeah yeah it could go wrong so yeah like, so because like how they fit together <laughs> could look not right you know <laughs> Derek doesn't like it when i use internet slang on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna have to cut all that out Sorry, it's in the zeitgeist, Derek. You can't help. The, 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 that's how the that's how the kids the kids are talking these days. I try to stay hip and relevant. I try to stay litty with the children. Oh no, don't say litty. Yeah. Now I do, now I dab now I dab, which is also like four years out of date. Yeah. Oh, Der- Derek's got about five minutes to choppity chop <laughs> right here. No, leave it in. Let the children know that I'm hip. <laughs> Well, I think, Amanda, it would be fun if you have the time and could create a a duo, a plant, a plant well, pollinator duo. You and Ped have done the what we call the Wolverines Don't Howl panel, mm-hmm. which is kind of 
the genesis of this podcast, like the flower, this podcast evolved forth from that original panel <laughs> talk. And you guys have talked about poison ivy before on that. Yeah. Yeah. Ped so, gives an excellent talk about poison ivy. So what what are your fall downs with poison ivy, the plant character that already exists? Or what do you, what do you like about poison ivy? <laughs> I love poison ivy, the character, um, because she's an eco terrorist, which is kind of cool. <laughs> like, I love an eco terrorist. Yeah, she, <laughs> I shouldn't be like pro terrorist, but um, yeah, she she mostly targets people that are harmful to the environment. But um, there's very little about poison ivy that's anything like actual poison ivy, right? So. <laughs> Even the character, so Pamela Isley, who's Poison Ivy, she's kind of originally had an aversion to sunlight. (laughs) Oh, that um, doesn't really make any sense. (laughs) Yeah. She was introduced originally to be a Batman, like, um, sort of a romantic interest. So they hadn't... Well, she's an eco-terrorist, but she's a lovely shade of green. Right, right. Yeah. And as we know, if you're a Batman fan, sometimes that's all it takes for Batman. Yeah, and now Poison Ivy is basically a plant now. Like, she's... Yeah. Sometimes has a woman form, but... Um, but anyways, yeah. I believe so, she's cut off from her plant side right now. I'd have to check. I haven't... I'm currently reading, reading Poison Ivy, and... Um, right. It's... The storyline's similar to what's going on with um, The Last of Us, because she's spreading spores and everything. Oh, no. Because I know for a while she got cut off from The Green, and she was all upset about that. But I haven't read since, so. Yeah. Yeah, so. Um, but she, she, you know, early on it was all about her seductive power and stuff mm-hmm. like that. There's mm-hmm. nothing seductive about Poison Ivy. <laughs> um, there are, there are a handful a of points that, yeah. <laughs> I had it on my arm once and I did not feel sexy. Yeah. Not even a little bit. You were like, hey, I'm like, look at this husband. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't good. Painful blistering spot on my arm. Mm." (laughs) Oh, Amanda, you've never had poison ivy? I've never had poison ivy. Mm -mm. Wow. Uh, There's some studies I'd like you to help me with then because maybe you're not (laughs) allergic. (laughs) I have very sensitive skin, so I would not be surprised if I am allergic, but. No, we don't really have it here. I think if you get, we get stinging nettles, and we yeah. get poison oak, poison oak, but we don't have poison yeah. ivy. It's funny when you go on the USDA plant database. I can't believe I can't tell you how many times I've seen like the range of something, and Oregon is not in the range. It's it's so weird. <laughs> it knows better. It knows better than it comes here. <laughs> you like see all the US is green, and then Oregon is just like not highlighted, and you're like, what? Uh-huh. Like there isn't one like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No, so. we don't let it. We only just got the emerald ash borer. We're we're very uh, forestry heavy over here, so we're very aware of what's coming in and out. So Derek mentioned that you have poison oak. So there's this whole family, Anacardiaceae, which contains poison ivy, poison oak, mangoes, cashews. So if you're really, really allergic to one, you might be allergic to all of them. Oh well, I love a cashew, so I should be. Yeah, me clear. too. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that my high school prom date, I learned, was allergic to mangoes because her, like, tongue swelled up after eating. Well, we were talking about oranges earlier. I'm allergic to oranges, so. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Not drink orange juice is the answer. I guess so, yeah. (laughs) Are you allergic to all citrus? All citrus. Even kiwis, somehow. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's bad. I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the worst part is people just don't 
think I'm telling the truth. They think I'm just being a picky eater. And so they'll add it anyway. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really allergic. I'm not just saying like, <laughs> don't put any lemon on my fish, please. I, I really do need to know if there's any lemon in this fish sauce or whatever. So you've always had to have plain tap water. You can have like tap water with lemon. Well, here's the extra thorn in my side. I, yeah. To be clear, I'm not like having anaphylactic shock or anything. I get like the hives. It's fine. Uh, and I get like a nasty cold sore. It, it, it awakes the, the, the face herpes inside of me. But, <laughs> but the thing is, I didn't develop the allergy as severe, severe enough that I had to stop eating it until I was probably about 18, maybe 19. So you just Up kept till, dosing yourself until it right. got so bad. Until I got bad enough. Yeah. Because yeah. I ate them as kids and I'd always kind of feel gross after and I could never figure out why. <laughs> and like uh, I'd, you wash your hands with citrus soap all the time without even thinking about it, mm-hmm. right? Orange mm-hmm. soap, lemon soap. Every every cleaning thing is citrus flavored. <laughs> and Derek says I was a sickly child. <laughs> I I stand by I'm only five foot two because I was kind of a sick kid. Uh, whereas all my siblings are over. Chelsea's probably five, six. And then Ethan and Derek are probably five ten. Um, oh well, I'm just I, a, I just a little baby. Don't <laughs> <five> <laughs> but yeah, you I wash had your that hands same with problem. Soap, you know, think about it. I had the same problem with poison ivy. So growing up in the Pine Barrens, I was constantly exposed to poison ivy my whole life. I did a lot of hiking. As the feral child that you yes, were. I was a feral little monster running through the forest <laughs> with with my border collie, lady. And, oh my uh, gosh, we did a ride of children. She was awesome. About, about, <laughs> About child Kelly just like ah in the wild. <laughs> you you can draw it, Amanda. It'll be great. Oh my gosh, it was um, so good. But I was constantly dosing myself with poison ivy. It did nothing. I even like took some and put it on my arm, and nothing happened. And then in my thirties, I was doing a uh, an invasive species plant cleanup at a local park. My husband's company does volunteer work every year, and um. I uh, got horrible, horrible poison ivy all the way from my wrist up to my shoulder. And I went to the doctor and I said, what, what is this? I don't get poison ivy. And he goes, you've been dosing yourself for 30 years. Congratulations. Now you get poison ivy. Yeah, it's finally come. I've heard that's true, like snakes. And you talked about butterflies, like oh, your colleagues can't handle butterflies anymore. Yeah, he worked with butterflies and he can't that's now because he's allergic me, to like, their scales. It's, it feels like it should be the other way around. So wait, you, you didn't know like- that, you, that you were picking up poison ivy? Um, oh no, I had I had gloves on and stuff, and I had long sleeves, but I must have touched my arm with a glove. Like I knew there was poison ivy there; I could see it. And um, yeah, I tried to take all the precautions and ended up getting it anyway. My husband got a little bit, I think, on his ankle, but it really got me. Um, the doctor says I'm probably now very sensitive to it, which yeah. is why it went nuts. Yeah, so, Derek you know. mentioned about the oil persisting. It 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 can persist. It's very very stable. It doesn't break down very quickly. It's called mm. urushiol, and um, so it just stays on your skin and continues. Yeah, to I mean it, it'll stay on oh, your pets. Man. It'll stay on your clothes. If you're like yeah, me, your who doesn't like to wash my jeans after every wear, I like to wear them a few times, you know, until they get nice and soft. But that's... well, that's what they that's what they say you're supposed to do. You're supposed to. I, there's some chart that has like how many wears you're supposed to do per item. Yeah. Well, if they're real jeans, not like women's jeans, which are like one yeah. percent jean, one percent, ninety nine percent elastic. Exactly. The, the, the biggest um, issue um, with the oil is that it's volatile. So you, if you burn it, you can inhale it, and that's the worst way to get poison ivy. 
Oh my god, in your you, lungs? You mean poison ivy of the lungs? Oh yeah, there was a thing, there was like a wildfire oh down in gosh. Florida where all these people were hospitalized because they were inhaling it. Oh, Florida. So, yeah. Oh, Florida. Yeah, continuation <laughs> of our Florida, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you can burn it up place. and you can inhale it and then it burns the inside of your lungs. What happens if you eat it? Or does no one eat it? I've never so done no that experiment, so I don't know. <laughs> I gotta um, know. Someone get Schmidt on the line. We gotta know. I imagine it would be this po- just poison ivy in your mouth. Can you imagine it oh, on your tongue? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was thinking inside about, like, of your what cheeks. What do you do to your tummy? Yeah. Oh, my. You just send me to the hospital. Put me in a coma. Wake me up when it's gone. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> well, it does, um, I, I think, back to, the, to poison ivy, the villain, does she have any of those traits? Like she does a lot of kissing, doesn't she? Yeah, Amanda's she making kisses. Amanda just made pissy faces. Yeah, she's very seductive. She has like a kind of a pheromonal type of release. Um, and there's no evidence of any plants being able to make you that. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, Star Trek would have me believe otherwise. Thank oh, you. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> there's all these plants that you know, like there's all this like. Well, there are debatable Afro- stuff aphrodisiac plants. plants. Yeah, right? and that's all very debatable. Um, so, yeah, they seem more interested in. I think it's because pollination. You know, people associate with their, as I do, with what their own experiences. So they think of pollination as like, oh, you're you're doing the nasty for the plants. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they, I, yeah. And that's like their big thing, right? That's what flowers want from you is they want you to come and mix their pollens up. Yeah. And Isn't they it ironic that like when we themselves? buy people flowers, we're handing them sex organs? Yeah. Like, I always thought that was kind of a funny thing. I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a subtle gift, is it? No. Well, and, and apparently, I, I discovered this recently, there are certain flowers that you should give to men and certain flowers you should give to women. Oh, wow. So, Can you explain? So if the um, you want to give flower- men Georgia O'Keeffe flowers, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I gifted you. A, a she Georgia somehow O'Keefe. made every flower look a certain way, but um, she knew what she liked. Yeah, if the flower has a prominent pistil, which is the female re- reproductive part of, like, a, think of like a hibiscus. Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed to give to men. And women, you're supposed to give flowers that are a lot more dainty and petally and mm. with less. It seems like that secret language of flowers stuff where they're yeah. like, oh, a, a yellow rose represents friendship. And, you, <laughs> you know, a, a, a whispering vine represents I have a no, secret. No one tell tells you. like 12 <laughs> adolescent boys these tricks when they're trying to impress some girl like, you know, I bought you these yellow <laughs> roses. Yeah, I buy you these carnations <laughs> from the Costco. Yeah. <laughs> it's the effort that's what that's what girls are after is the attempt but the language of flowers very funny to me it's just it seems like another one of those things that we think about bygone eras like we think they used to do this sort of stuff in victorian area and there's like very little evidence that anyone bothered with this kind of stuff you know it's like saying that oh you know 21st century was very into astrology and they all did this i was like yes i mean some people did but like let's calm down (laughs) chill well, how often is the art from those eras reflective of what was actually happening? 
it depends on the type of art is really the question as an art historian let me tell you because uh, a lot of times you talk about idealized form and you're also talking about like strictly now you've done it these are one of my favorite these rants are these tangents are my favorite we need to have an art it. history episode where i just talk about like bugs in art history uh but the short answer is it depends the very very short answer is was a woman drawing it or a man drawing it because women would draw domestic scenes that were very true to life. And the men tended to draw more idealized scenes. Like uh, Degas was really into, he had a huge old crush on the ballet. And so he would go and paint the ballerinas. But the like, we talked a little bit about separation of author and result. The thing that we, viewing the painting now, don't realize is that ballerinas were basically the lowest form of acceptable social dance like ballerinas were basically one step above a lady of the night as it were a lot of times how did that change (laughs) a lot of times it was both it was you were a lady of the night at night and you were a dancer during the day because you had to get by and they didn't pay ballerinas anything so and it changed i think with so many things you'll see the change of the introduction of schools once Mm -hmm. you could go to school for something it changes its social class and uh, when we started to view dancing as an art form rather than just an occupation. So the conversation around the oeuvre of an artist is very <laughs> complicated, but for a long time, painting is just an occupation. The way that you could be a wall builder or a plumber or a electrician, although they weren't electricians then. So was it so, all commission? Well, once you hit michelangelo michelangelo <laughs> uh there's this one guy I, I believe it's Fasili, and he's got a big old crush on michelangelo and he thinks he just thinks he's so cool oh he's so cool we need to talk about michelangelo and so he writes a book that's all about how michelangelo is like god's gift to art and that we all need to talk about Michelangelo and how he's really cool because he did all these things and here's his life story and that's like kind of cited as the birthplace of ooh, of art history is this one guy just just loving on Michelangelo and let me tell you that Michelangelo gave the guy no time of day like because Michelangelo was like way too good way too good for this guy and from there that became really popular and so then they started writing like well what's Leonardo da Vinci's story what's Raphael's story you know so that's people start to get interested in the artist as the character behind these paintings and that's when you stop getting these studios because for a long time it was a master and his studio of students and that's why you see a lot of times it's like oh he was a student of such and such he was a student of such and such because you had to go to these worked as schools so you know, oh, I want to be a painter. I'll go study under Leonardo da Vinci. And so you would paint all the flowers in a Leonardo da Vinci painting because you were just his employee. And so Leonardo da Vinci paints the important parts, usually the heads. And then the rest <laughs> is all just student work. The rest is just other people. And so a lot of art history is trying to figure out who painted what part of each painting. But they all follow under the, all fall under the umbrella of a Leonardo da Vinci painting because his studio produced it rather than just strictly him. So you start getting the artist as like, I want a Michelangelo painting uh, right when you start to get name recognition of Michelangelo painting this. And it's important that Michelangelo did it because I like Michelangelo's story. 
And then from there, you start getting the, oh, I'm Monet, I'm Monet, I'm Picasso, you know, and that's, so over the hundreds of years, you start getting artists with, with oeuvre is what I always call it, artists with basically charismatic artists who can rise to the top based on their story, unless, oh, I'm just a really good at painting a mountain. So you have, you start to get a separation of working class artists and what we think of as an artist today, which is a solo person who does all their own work. So there you go. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know if that Picasso, answers your question at all. I thought Picasso <laughs> did most of his own work. Picasso does do his own work. So Picasso, yeah. because he's 20th century, he's now at the end of that evolution to where we now think of an artist as a single person. So he's a single artist who does his own. He produced like something like 20,000 drawings throughout his whole life because he was a little bit of a, if you've heard the story about Oprah signing her name on a check and then no one wants to cash the check because it's an Oprah check now. Mm-hmm. And that's how she gets away with not paying for stuff. <laughs> but Picasso was that kind of guy. He would draw something on a napkin and give it to you. And that was how he paid for stuff because, well, now you've got this napkin that's worth $8,000 or whatever, you know, in 1940s money. But so yeah, Picasso, <laughs> I mean, he painted like seven paintings a day his whole life. So he's, there's a lot of Picasso work out there, but, but you look back at like Botticelli, you're looking at Botticelli, the studio rather than Botticelli, the guy. Welcome to the art history podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of, there's a Botticelli at the Portland art museum right now. (laughs) If you want to go check it out. (laughs) That's interesting. Oh, Derek, don't you talk to me about the dang old man his name was jackson pollock and the thing people don't understand about, okay, so sorry derek derek put in the uh, the chat who's the guy who just did the splatters so so if he you've never seen a painting too, i think he's solo too yeah he's he's by 20th century you're looking at solos if they're not solo they will say as much like turns Andy out Warhol you don't need studio. 20 guys to flick paint at a canvas no and the thing people misunderstand (laughs) about jackson pollock which to be fair i still don't really like jackson pollock uh for a variety of reasons but the reason why his work became yeah banksy is also someone who doesn't work alone he wants you to think he works alone but he does like shepherd fairy yeah they have he's like a whole machine that does it all Mm -hmm. (laughs) so jackson pollock became popular because he arrived right at the time when people started talking about what is art and how does art get created? And so Jackson Pollock's work is actually about watching him make the painting. It's not about what the painting looks like at the end. Jackson he was Pollock government was a, funded, I believe. Yeah, uh, he's a performance a large... artist, not yeah. a visual artist. And I stand by that. <laughs> it's about what qualifies as art. Like if you look at it and say, well, I could make that. Yeah, that's the point. That's the point of a Jackson Pollock. My favorite Jackson is that, Pollock is in the is in DC and it's got a cockroach stuck in it. Yeah. To bring it all back to bugs here. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pinky the brain episode. Oh, they fake Pinky's ex. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Once you die, that's it, because you've created a supply demand issue. There will never mm-hmm. be more than there is right now. So I'm assuming that, we, we went way off the rails. Because yeah, sorry, we're... that was my fault. I warned you, Ped. We <laughs> no, I like this stuff, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how much of that will actually make it to Final Cut, but... Probably none of it, but Probably that's okay. Ped, Ped got an art is... history lesson, which is <laughs> which is what people come to the podcast to receive. The long, the long and short of it is, if a woman is, is painting it in the late 19th century, 
it's probably pretty true to life. If a man's painting it, who knows? The end. (laughs) (laughs) Bugs Need Heroes is created by Derek Conrad and Kelly Zimmerman. Hosted by Amanda Allen Nide and Kelly Zimmerman. Bugs Need Heroes is produced and edited by Derek Conrad. Our music is Ladybug Castle by Roll Music. All character art by Amanda Allen Nide. Got a bug question? Email us at bugsneedheroes at gmail.com. Check us out on bugsneedheroes.com for the visual companion to our episodes with the artwork of the bug-related heroes. We also have an Instagram, Twitter, and subreddit under the Bugs Need Heroes name. Thanks for coming by. You've accidentally stumbled upon my trap card, which is that I'm a Disney adult.